Good morning, everyone. Um, we come to the final passage um, in our series in James. So please grab your Bibles and turn to the letter of James. If you have a visitor's Bible, you'll see that on the order of service, it tells you it's on page 1013. And before we begin, let me just add my prayers uh, to Pete's. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter and for the time that we've spent in it. Um, we pray that all the, the words that you've spoken to us throughout the series and today, that you would, you would give us, for any of us that are wandering, or for any friends that we have that are wandering from your truth, that you would give them spiritual healing and spiritual renewal. We pray for that today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's turn then to James chapter 5, and the reading is from verse 13 all the way to the end at verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. At the start of our, our letter, we actually use these final verses to give us a, a framework for how to explore the letter. And we ask the question, how does it happen that someone ends up wandering from the truth, putting their soul in a vulnerable position? And we've done that. And we've seen that wandering comes from everyday things, from trials, from temptations, from division in community, division in our hearts, or as James diagnoses it, double-mindedness. And the big call from James is to draw near to God and remain steadfast. What we have in this final passage of the letter is a message to squash any inclination of wandering and solidify that steadfastness. And the message is to pray. Wandering can begin with something as ordinary and everyday as trials and temptations but it can be dealt with and solved by something as ordinary and everyday 
as prayer. So point one then, prayer that leads to spiritual healing. And we ask, what are we praying for exactly? What does the wanderer pray? What do we pray for the wanderer? In verse 13, if someone is suffering, what exactly do they pray? If someone is cheerful, what are they praying in their praise? Verse 14, if someone is sick, why do they call the elders to pray over them? Why do the elders anoint them with oil? What is a prayer of faith in verse 15? Can James really guarantee such a, a faith will, uh, and prayer will raise them up? What does it mean to raise them up? It's quite a simple message just to pray, but I think we need to explore all these questions to establish a, a deeper understanding of, of what and how we are to pray. So let's, let's start by addressing the reasons elders uh, pray over the sick and anoint them with oil. So let's take a look at verse 14 again, shall we? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So the sick person, he's called the elders to visit them and the elders are to pray over him and anoint him with oil. Now we should acknowledge to begin with that the church has some history around this verse. It seems that early on the church um, deemed it that the oil would be blessed by a bishop and the bishop would give the oil for people to use in their, in their homes. Uh, but then they decided it was something only priests could do um, and then it became like a sacrament for the priest to use at people's deathbed. And so as this evolved, uh, Luther and Reformed thought following him they became very concerned with this, this use of the oil as a, a, a sacrament that could only be administered by, by priests um, at, at the deathbed. Um, and, and he was worried that this gave a, a sort of inappropriate uh, human authority over grace. So that's kind of a bit of the, the history in the background, but what are we to do about it? Well, I, I recommend that we start by placing ourselves in James's shoes or sandals as he, as he writes this letter. And at that time, oil was medical gold. Oil was used for many things in a medicinal sense. So bringing it to a sick person, you know, makes sense. Very logical, typical remedy. But I think we've got to ask the question why he uses the word anoint. Anointing in the Bible is, is usually something for setting apart someone or something for God. Anointing and holiness are connected. Holiness literally meaning to be set apart. So can we say this sickness is related to holiness in some way? Well, let's push on and, and keep working at finding the meaning within the context of the whole text. If we take a look at verse 15 and 16 we'll see what kind of result we're looking for after the praying and the anointing. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So the praying and the anointing leads to being raised up. Well, according to commentators, this 
raising up language in its original Greek is resurrection language. It's, it's used elsewhere in the Bible for the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of believers. Okay, and then carrying on uh, through, uh, we'll see that the person, um, if they've committed sins, they'll be forgiven. So next, let's just go on to verse 16 and ask what the therefore is therefore. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Confess your sins to one another. This prayer that we're looking at is a confession of sin, which will lead to the healing of this sickness to do with holiness by forgiveness. Sickness to do with holiness, treated with the remedy of confessional prayer, leading to the hope of resurrection. Now, in the letter as a whole, we've, we've never before encountered physical illness, but this is sounding like a sickness we have seen. The sickness has been named by James as double-mindedness. It's been called betrayal. It's been called adultery, the breaking of covenant vows with God. It's been labeled as friendship with the world, positioning yourself as enemies of God. We've seen a sickness to do with holiness. If you have a reference Bible, it takes you to Mark 6, verse 13. And this is the only other real place that I could see where sickness is related to um, anointing with oil and healing people. But what I think is interesting in verse 12, just before that, the headline mission of the disciples is to get people to repent. The healing of sick and anointing them with oil is in the context of repentance. So I think if someone asks, should I call one of the elders to anoint me with oil because I'm sick, then I reckon you should say, well, if you want to do it because of James 5 verse 14, then I reckon the elders will be expecting to hear a confession of sin and with that context, they'll pray over you. Now, I'm not saying that the elders or any of us should stop praying for the healing of physical sickness. It's a good thing to do. It's something we do all the time, and it's a right thing to do. I'm not saying when we get a, a chest infection, it's because we have sinned, and, and we need to call Pete or James or Graham and, and confess to them. But I think here in James, where the original word actually translated as sick doesn't necessarily mean physical sickness, I think we're looking at a spiritual sickness that is dealt with by confession, repentance, turning back from wandering, receiving forgiveness, and looking to the future resurrection, where all sickness, including physical, will be dealt with. Now, I don't know how that lands for people, whether that's controversial or maybe they just totally agree with it off the, off the bat, but I think as we move to point two, I think there's further evidence uh, for that. So let's take a look. Point two, prayer that leads to spiritual renewal. Now, 
as we look at verse 17 and 18, we might be tempted to think, ah, Elijah is being held up as the example of someone who prays really good prayers, a super, super prayer from a super Christian. But actually, I think this is, is more uh, uh, about the very specific story in his life and ministry. Okay, so let's read James verse 17 and 18 again. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And I, I think the key to perhaps understanding this passage, certainly in the way that I'm preaching it, is by looking at this very specific moment. So please turn with me back to 1 Kings chapter 18, and that's page 299 in the Visitor's Bibles. 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, a bit of context. The book of Kings provides the life and times of uh, each of Israel's kings, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and there's not much good. And what we have at chapter 18 is under a bad king. And the people under the reign of this bad king, they've fallen under a state of very poor spiritual sickness. Now, if you look to verse 21, Elijah has gathered all of Israel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, the people James is writing to, you know, they're not double-minded because they're caught between God and Baal. We're not caught between God and Baal. But they do want to live as a people of God, but enjoy the pleasures of the people who are enemies of God. And what Elijah calls this is limping between two opinions. And he asks them, how long can they go on doing this? And just like in our letter from James, Elijah calls them to make a choice. Okay, but as part of this choice, Elijah, in, in verse uh, 18 here, he sets up a big contest. He has two altars, um, and he says, altar of Baal, call on your God, and if he's real, he'll set it alight. And then he has another altar where he says, I will call on my God, Yahweh. Um, and if he is the real God, he'll set that alight. Um, and of course, the fake God of Baal does nothing, however much they, they try. Um, but Yahweh sets it ablaze straight away. Um, and after this contest, the victory of Yahweh, uh, something happens that would make this this miracle, this very visual miracle, pass into memory because, well, a bit more context, the people have been living without water for ages um, because of God's judgment upon the bad king. It's not rained a drop, it's dry as a bone. But then, after the contest, after uh, God reveals himself, Elijah prays, and there's a small cloud appear appearing in the distance, and then it rains. So let's turn back to the letter of James, page 1013, if you lost that. Now, after seeing that story, let's read verse 18 again. You see, 
He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So hopefully that verse has more weight to it now. And now this is a brilliant story, but even though we understand it a bit more, we have to kind of ask why. Why James put that in chapter 5 at this point? Well, I think interestingly, um, James actually adds to the story of 1 Kings and gives, gives us information that we'd have never known. Uh, verse 17 adds that he prayed before the contest that it might not rain, whereas 1 Kings doesn't actually um, tell us that. So we, we would never have known without James. And verse 17 also tells us that um, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And I reckon that means that these prayers are not mighty prayers from a mighty person, but they're ordinary prayers, just like ours. So I think that answers the question, what is a prayer of faith? Yes, miraculous things may come from them, think of the contest, but they're not prayed in a miraculous way. And we're not actually praying for a miracle like we see in the contest at the altar, because that's not the heart of the story of Elijah. The story in Elijah's life was about working to heal the spiritual limping of people caught between two lives. People whose faith has been as dry as the soil in the drought. That's the real miracle. Through the ordinary prayers of Elijah, God worked to bring back people from the spiritual desert that they've been wandering in to give them a renewed and refreshed faith. And that, I reckon, is the big thing that James is driving at in our, in our passage. Through the power of ordinary prayer from ordinary people like me and you, God will work to bring back people who are spiritually limping, wandering through the desert with a dry faith, weak and weary, and he will give them a renewed, fruitful life in the faith, heading in the, the right direction. And that's the big result James is looking for from uh, his big message within the letter. Um, throughout the series, as I said, I used verse 19 and 20 for the, the driving force of the message. And I, I, I do hope that's, that's making more sense now. Let me just read those again. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. From the beginning to the end of this letter, James is deeply concerned for the wanderer. He knows that a person who wanders into the desert, there's, there's nothing there for them but death. And that's why he's filled this letter with warnings. That's why prayer is so important during the spiritual drought. But James also knows God's mercy and why he's also filled this letter with comfort for those who would return, those who would be brought back from wandering from the truth. And that's why prayer is important after the healing, to be renewed in faith, to remain steadfast, and for the soul never to return to that vulnerable condition. 
Now, before we end this sermon and our time in this letter, I thought it would be good to provide a couple of examples that have been on my mind um, as I've been preaching this letter about wandering to, to help us push this into our, our realities. Um, so the first one is, is an example that is double-mindedness in an unlikely place. Um, a few weeks ago, I went into a Christian bookshop called Cornerstone. Um, and as most of you will know, Cornerstone is a biblical term about Jesus. You know, a Cornerstone was the most important stone of a building. It was foundational. Everything would be held together by this stone. That's why Jesus is the Cornerstone. It's why I'm thinking this is going to be a pretty great bookshop as I walk in. So I walk into Cornerstone, and the books are on the, the left-hand side, and I walk over, and the first shelf you come to is one of those like island shelves, and the, the first book that grabs my attention is titled Polytheistic Monasticism, Voices from Pagan Cloisters. Now, if you're not sure what that means, polytheism means believing in more than one God. So I'm standing there, and you know, may, I'm just, I can't really believe my eyes, so I turn the book over, and there's some information about the author. The author is a devotional polytheist who has been practicing various forms of paganism since the 80s. She's ordained in two polytheist traditions and holds a master's degree in comparative religion. So the first book I pick up in Cornerstone is actually a manual for wandering from the truth. A manual for wandering. So I go around the corner, and then there's another book that stands out. In big capital letters, the title reads, The Good Book. So I'm thinking, that's, that's fair enough, that's good. Let's read that. But then I see there's a subheading that says, A Secular Bible. So hang, hang on a minute, a secular Bible. And interestingly, it says it's not written by, but made by A.C. Grayling, and it's on sale for 15 pounds. And I'm thinking, what has happened to me? I, I've fallen asleep reading James, and I'm actually read, I'm dreaming illustrations of, of, of wandering from the truth, you know. But, but I wasn't, I was, it was real, and I read the description of this secular Bible, and it says, the good book is an alternative, non-religious Bible, and has been made in just the same way as the Judeo-Christian Bible. The Bible was made over many, many years by many hands. The good book has been made by philosopher A.C. Grayling, so just in the same way cornerstone indeed. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know whether to talk to the people behind the, the, the desk and ask them who decided what books goes on these, these shelves. I was angry. I was frustrated. I still don't know have the words to really explain it. But the way I kind of concluded my feelings were about it was that it's not something to mock, and I'm not mocking the writers or anything like that. But I think what scared me the most was that this Christian bookshop realized there is a market out there for Christians who want to read these things. There's a market out there for people who 
will perhaps say there is only one true God and God's word was, was written and inspired by his Holy Spirit. But they also want to, to, to buy books on paganism and learn about how there's supposedly multiple gods. They want to take religion out of religion, I suppose. There is a market for people out there. There are people like the ones James is writing to. And I think that's something definitely we can pray about. Um, one more example then, um, which is less infuriating, and it's more upsetting really. Um, it's Fern's story, uh, my wife Fern's story, and I asked her if I could share it on her behalf, because it's kind of been with me all the way through this, this series, and she said I could. So she, a bit of background of Fern, she grew up in a, an, a family who's, who wasn't Christian, much like myself, um, but when she got to 14, a friend of hers at school uh, shared the gospel with her, very courageous, invited her to church, and praise be to God, Fernanda came a, became a Christian. But today, instead of being able to share that joy with her friend, um, her friend no longer calls herself a Christian um, after her dad struggled with illness. Um, multiple times he, he was suffering um, before he eventually died. And for her, that was just too much. She decided to walk away from the faith, walk away from her church, and she told uh, the minister who was there, and apparently he was actually really verbally abusive to her, and he got very, very angry. Um, and for her, that was just it. That was the final, final, uh, whatever, straw. And so she decided to, to walk away from it. And, and today, you know, however many years on, Fern is a mature Christian and growing in the faith, but she can barely speak to her friend about anything of depth because her friend is so against it, you know, and I think that's so sad. You know, when we, when we read of Paul and he talks of the people he shared the gospel with, he can't wait to see them, you know, in the new creation. And, yeah, it's just a story that's been on my, my mind throughout this, this series that this girl, she didn't do anything uh, dramatic. She didn't write a Bible that didn't include God in it. She didn't write anything about paganism. She didn't get caught up in finding the fact that she was a witch Nothing crazy. She just struggled with, with the suffering in her life. And the people around her, instead of praying, instead of comforting her, they, they shouted at her and, well, we can pray for her as well. It's such a sad thing. And I'm sure we all have many stories of people who've, who've wandered from the, the truth. Um, but my hope is that not just today's message, but this whole series will not just help, but motivate us to go out there and bring someone back, to work to save their soul from death, to pray with them, to pray for them, and let people around us know that we're ready and willing to hear their confession without judgment, but full of mercy. We're ready to hear people if they're sinning, if they're struggling, if they're wandering, we're willing to listen and help bring them back. And more importantly, perhaps, Jesus is, is ready and willing to welcome them back. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your message that you've given to us with this letter. We thank you that even though it is an ancient letter, it is so penetrating of our reality today. We pray for all the people that might encounter books that are unhelpful. We pray for all the people that want to explore things that are untrue. Keep them safe, Lord. Hold them fast. Bring them back. We pray that anyone who is involved in any kind of ministry, that we would all be courageous and trusting in your word. Anyone who is suffering, Lord, we pray for them that they would remain steadfast, that they would hold on to your truth. We pray for Fernanda's friend. We pray that you would heal the wounds that were left. We pray that one day she would return from her wandering. We pray that you would fill her with your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would, uh, ENC, create a culture amongst us, brothers and sisters, that we are listeners. We listen to each other's sins, that we don't hide them, but we all bring them to the cross. And as we finish this time in our series, we pray that we would not forget these truths, but they would stay with us and help us to grow in faith, hope, and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.